Well, if you're back with us or visiting with us after a few weeks' absence, uh, you rem- we, just to let you know, we're in a uh, short series, we should finish it up next week, on, on membership, on membership of the church. And uh, so if you're, uh, what we'll do is we'll finish this series up and then we'll go back to our exposition of Matthew and walking through Matthew and seeking to understand uh, what Matthew is saying. A lot of what we're talking about does tie in with Matthew. We've seen that even in talking about Matthew 16, Matthew 18, Matthew 28. But let me just remind you of where we've been. Really, this series builds on itself. It's, it's building a case uh, that's all intertwined. Everything is intertwined in what we've been talking about. Uh, I put those definitions. I've got multiple definitions that we've been accumulating over the weeks. Uh, but those should be in your notes there with you. They should also be on the screen behind me as we walk through them. So you remember where we started. We started what, with the question, what is the church? What is the church? And there's really a definition for the universal church and the local church. Let's start with the universal church. Let's remind ourselves of these things. The universal church is the assembly of all new covenant members who are genuine disciples of Christ the King, who are citizens of the kingdom from heaven, who are priests for God in the world, and who together form a temple for the display and enjoyment of the glory of God. That is the church. It is uh, the new covenant assembly. It is the new covenant people of God. But the reality is, is that universal church will not be displayed in its fullness until the end, until Christ comes again in his kingdom. So how is that church, how does that kingdom manifested now? Well, it is manifested through the local church, the local church, which brings our next definition. A local church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and the commands of Christ the King, to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances, that's baptism and Lord's Supper, and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world following the teaching and example of elders. That is what a local church is. I like that imagery of embassy. If you were to think of uh, the universal church, it's, it's all of the citizens in the future gathering in that kingdom. Well, the local church is a slice of that in enemy territory. It is an embassy in enemy territory of that future kingdom. But that led us and gave us the foundation for talking about church membership. What is church membership? When we think about church membership, it's not just the process. There is a process, but that's not its essence. What is the essence of church membership? What do we mean by that? And we mean this. Church membership is a church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's profession of faith and discipleship, combined with a Christian's submission to the church and its oversight. We talked about how Jesus gave a stewardship authority to the local church to affirm others in discipleship, to exercise the keys of the kingdom. It's a stewardship authority. It's not a willy-nilly authority. It doesn't mean we can say whatever we want, but it is given for the purpose of saying, here is a disciple of Christ, or here is not a disciple of Christ. Another way you can think about it, and I have a visual, a visual we've been building off of for this. Uh, We talked about this from 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about how there's an inside to the local church and there's an outside. That's what 1 Corinthians 5 indicates. 
And it's those inside the local church that are the membership. Another way of saying that is a local church is its membership. This church, Faith Bible Church, is the members of Faith Bible Church. That's what the local church is. And then based on that, we ask this question, well, how do you move from being outside the local church to being inside? How do you move from being outside to inside? And this was last week where we answered the question, how are baptism and membership connected? How are baptism and membership connected? And we said this, this is your next definition. Again, it's on the screen behind me and in your notes. Baptism is a church's act of affirming and betraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water, and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. Uh, we talked about it like this. The idea, the imagery of baptism is multiple, but one of the things it's saying is that you are being immersed into Christ, you're being brought into union with him, and you're being united with his death. You drown, if you drown, when you die, when you drowned, and then you are resurrected. You are resurrected, and you share Christ's resurrection life. You are cleansed also from your sin. And so we added to our little imagery there, uh, we said, this, baptism then joins one to many. It, baptism is that initial means of an embassy stamping or issuing a passport of citizenship to a believer. It is, if there's no faith and repentance, it does nothing. Uh, that's, that's the issue, but it does portray, and Jesus commands that those who are identified with him, identify with him in the waters of baptism. Why? to display their union with him, but if they're united with him, they are also united to the church. Baptism joins one to many. And today we answer the question, how are the Lord's Supper and membership connected? How are the Lord's Supper and membership connected? But before we launch into that, I want you to remember what is at stake. What is at stake in all of this? Why are we talking about this? Well, really what our claim is, is that the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, identify the who of the local church. They identify the who of the local church. Remember what we said. We saw this in the Old Testament. It was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. God is very interested in a distinct, definable, and visible people. God is very interested, remember those three words, distinct, definable, and visible people. God wants that. Because even in the Old Testament, and it's true in the New, part of God displaying his glory and his work in the world is through gathering a people. Gathering a people. And as we think about the ordinances and what they're doing, each one of them, the, uh, we talked about baptism last week, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper this week, each one of them is portraying the gospel. They proclaim. Each one of them proclaims something. Just like baptism portrays death to self, death with Christ, immersion into Christ, being raised with Christ. Well, why, why would we want to be immersed into Christ? Well, even as we're going to see today, it's because of his sacrifice, because of what he did on the cross. Because when he died, the people who were united with him by faith died, and when he rose, the people 
rose with him. He gave them new life. It's the gospel. It's the gospel being portrayed, being proclaimed through visible means. And it's part of our identifying with Christ as individuals and as a body. We struggle with this as a culture. We do. We talked about this as a, at the very beginning. We are very much all about the individual. I have my rights as an individual. Remember we talked about that idea of where our culture is at, that the individual is king, the autonomous individual is king. So if you do anything that makes me feel bad, that harms my sense of self-worth as an individual, well, then you're morally wrong. That's where our culture is at. But Jesus has a different vision. He does not negate the individual, but the individual finds the, their identity in the community. Really, everyone does, even in our own culture. Even those who uh, think they're walking as a proud individual, yet they still need to be affirmed by those around them. That's just a part of how God has designed us. And God is designed for the individual Christian to be not just identified with him as an individual, but identified with his people in the church. And identified around what? What's the core? What's the basis? It's the gospel. The gospel is what makes us who we are. We don't exist without the gospel. We are nothing without the gospel. We wouldn't be here without the gospel. This group of people in this room would not gather apart from the gospel and what Christ has done. And the gospel is precious. The gospel is exceedingly precious. And if in the ordinances we are displaying the gospel, we are also guarding the gospel. We are guarding the gospel. That is what is at stake in the ordinances. Remember, we've said the basis, why is this such a big deal? Well, remember that Jesus has given to the local church a stewardship authority to say, yes, here's a disciple of Christ, here's a citizen of the future kingdom, or if they are walking contrary to that, here is not a citizen of the kingdom. It has the ability to bind and loose, to, to exercise those keys. Well, you can think about it like this, a specific exercise of the keys, maybe even the main one that the church, the local church exercises, is in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's exercising the keys of the kingdom. It's portraying who these people are. So that's the backdrop. That's what's at stake as we enter into our big question and answering our big question this morning how are the Lord's Supper and membership connected? We've got two answers to that question this morning. The first is this. The Lord's Supper is the sign of the new covenant. The Lord's Supper is the sign of the new covenant. Now, let me remember, remind you a little bit about covenants and signs. Maybe you were with us a few months ago. We went through this series called Kingdom Through Covenant. You can go back and listen through it if you'd like on our website. But basically what, what a covenant is, you have a relationship with someone prior to the covenant, and yet when you enter a covenant, uh, there are uh, responsibilities on both sides, and the covenant formalizes that. It formalizes this relationship. But what God does through history, his, what is he doing in history from Genesis to Revelation? He is establishing and portraying his kingdom through his stewardship king, 
together with the kingdom citizenry. And he moves that progress ahead through covenants. So uh, we can think even of the Noahic covenant, the Noahic covenant. Remember the Noahic covenant, God, God gives the world a bath. We actually talked about that last week in terms of baptism. He baptized the world, uh, he cleansed it, and then a new creation came out of that. And what does he say to Noah? He says, he gives them the same command that he gave to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers. But what does God say? He says, I'm never again going to flood the earth. I'm never again going to destroy the earth by a flood. But he doesn't just stop there. He gives a sign, the rainbow. I was driving this week uh, downtown a little bit, and I saw this beautiful, gorgeous rainbow over the, uh, over the river. It was amazing. It was so bright. But what was God doing in that? God was not just giving us a pretty display. He was reminding us, my promise to a sinful humanity is that I will not wipe them out again by water. I will not do it again. In fact, there's going to be stability. That's part of what the Noahic Covenant talks about. There's going to be stability. There's going to be seasons. There's going to be harvest. So that what? Humanity is not going to be wiped out, but there's going to be a redeemed humanity dwelling with God forever. Or you can think about the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, God makes a specific promise with Abraham. He's going to work through the people of Israel, and he gives the sign of circumcision to the males to mark out, here are God's people. Or you can think about the Mosaic covenant at Mount Sinai. Uh, God brings together this nation of Israel, and he says to them, here's my covenant. You're, you're entering into it with me. And what's the sign? The sign is the Sabbath, Exodus 31. It's something that is, what is a sign of a covenant? It's something that's visible, that you can see over and over again, like the rainbow or like keeping the Sabbath, to remember that both sides are part of a covenant and both sides have those obligations in that covenant. And what you can see amazingly, even in the Old Testament, is you can see how these signs were used and very important to define God's people. Uh, we read this passage earlier on. I think we read this in our church membership, uh, so it was week two, I think. Uh, but we read Exodus 12. You can turn to Exodus 12 if you want. Exodus 12, 43 through 49. And I wanted you to see how signs are important for defining God's people. We read this before. We're going to read it again. Exodus 12, 43 through 49. So this is in the context of God rescuing from Egypt, from bondage, his people. This is in the context of doing it. How did he do that? Through a Passover, through a lamb slaughtered and its blood spread over the door so that when the angel of death went by, he would pass over the doors. And this institutes a feast known as Passover, and that's really what Exodus 12 is all about. Uh, and then even a subsequent feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in the midst of that, kind of at the end of the initial set of instructions, we get this in Exodus 12, 43. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner may eat of it. In other words, some, maybe some Moabite comes outside of Israel and is like, uh, yeah, I want to eat the Passover with you. Nope, can't do it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it, after you have circumcised him. So maybe you've got a Moabite, and maybe the Moabite becomes a slave of one of the 
uh, uh, Israelite households. He can eat the Passover as long as what? He's circumcised. He's marked out as an Israelite, as functionally becoming an Israelite. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. So this is for the whole assembly of Israel. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, and we keep the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised. So maybe someone from Greece comes over to Israel and says, hey, I hear the one true God's among you, and he hangs out for a long time. Hey, I want to participate in the Passover with you. That's fine, as long as you take on yourself the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. You essentially need to become part of Israel in order to participate in this feast that, separate, that celebrates the rescue of Israel from bondage. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. But we fast forward and we fast forward in Israel's history, and we know that Israel gets scattered. They go into exile because of their sin. We've talked a lot about that in the book of Matthew. And right before Israel kind of finally goes into the exile, God says, I'm going to fix the problem uh, that was occurring. I'm going to give you a new covenant. Turn to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is the as you guys are probably familiar with, hopefully this is one of those texts that's in your back pocket because it's so important for how we think, uh, even as Christians. But I'm going to give you a new covenant. Uh, I'm going to solve your sin problem, which is what drove you into exile, Israel. So right before the last bit of Judah goes into exile in Jeremiah, we get this promise. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, that I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God says, with this covenant, I'm going to forgive all of your sin, and it's not going to be like it was in Israel. You could be part of Israel and yet not know Yahweh, not like this covenant. This covenant, everyone in the new covenant assembly knows Yahweh. Everyone knows the Lord because everyone has their sin forgiven. And the prophets, especially Isaiah, but others as well, speak in terms of this being like a second exodus. We had the first exodus where we're rescuing out of bondage in Egypt, but we're going to have the next exodus where Israel and even the nations are going to be gathered from all over the world in what is known as a second exodus. When God does this, when he brings about the new covenant, he is going to have a second exodus in drawing his people back to himself, which is exactly what Jesus is alluding to in 
the book of Matthew, but especially in the Lord's Supper. Turn to Matthew 26. Remember, in the earlier parts of Matthew, even in the baptism of John, we talked about it last week. What was the baptism of John all about? It was about Israel saying, yes, we need to repent. We need to entrust ourselves to God. We need his rescue. And so through these waters, we are expressing our repentance, and we are expressing our need to be a renewed people. That's, that's all tying in with the, 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 the desire for the new covenant. And Jesus, and we're seeing this in Matthew as it unfolds, essentially what he's saying is, I'm here, and I'm bringing about the new covenant. I'm here, and I'm bringing about the new covenant. In fact, all gospels, because this is exactly what happened, Jesus timed it, God timed it perfectly so that Jesus' death happens when? At Passover. At Passover. The Lord's Supper is a Passover meal. So we look at Matthew 26, 26, and let's see what Jesus has to say about this. Matthew 26, 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing, this would be unleavened bread from the Passover meal. Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant. Luke adds new. Jesus must have said the new covenant here. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What is Jesus saying? I'm kicking off the new covenant. And I'm doing, and kicking off the new covenant means kicking off a second exodus. Only this time, the Passover lamb is Jesus himself. The Passover lamb is Jesus himself. That's why he ties this meal with the Passover. Because now we're not just rescuing physically from one location to another, we're rescuing from the very heart of why not just Israel, but all humanity is in exile from God to begin with. And that issue is sin. Jesus is on that cross going to bear the eternal weight of wrath for every sin for his people that was committed. He will be slaughtered in their place and he will be raised again, giving them new life. This is the ultimate rescue. This is the ultimate second exodus. This is the ultimate Passover. And he says, do this. Eat of the bread, drink of the cup to remember this. It's the sign of the new covenant. What are covenant signs? They are things that you come back to again and again to remind yourself, here is what God has done. Here are my responsibilities. We are partaking together. We are remembering the gospel. We are remembering the gospel together. The sign and participating in the sign of the Lord's Supper is important because it points to the fundamental reason we exist as Christians, and that is Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' death on our behalf alone. It has weight. It is holy. It is significant. It is so mundane to come up here, and I'm going to grab my little two cups with one's got a little tasteless cracker, and the other's got this, 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 this juice in it. 
is so mundane looking, and yet the realities that are being portrayed are of infinite value and significance because it is symbolizing the body and blood of Christ that has been given for his people. So that's the first thing we need to say, that we need to have that backdrop. We need to have that mindset that the Lord's Supper is the sign of the new covenant, and you need to feel the weight of that. It is the sign of the new covenant. But secondly, we need to say this, the Lord's Supper visibly displays the local church. The Lord's Supper visibly displays the local church. And for where we're going for this, we're going to spend our time in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we, I almost went back to 1 Corinthians 5. What you see in 1 Corinthians 5 is you see, uh, you see Paul talk about the language of Passover. He says, cleanse out the old leaven, get rid of the wickedness among your assembly, because what? Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The, the second exodus has happened. The, the, the ultimate Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So this is what you need to be as a church, as a people. And we'll go back to 1 Corinthians 5 next week. But I want you to, I just touch on that to remind you that Paul's got that mindset because Jesus had that mindset. But where we're going to spend our time in 1 Corinthians is first, two places. First, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, which Steve read for us. And we're going to read it again, and I want to give you a little bit of the backdrop. Um, Corinthians had a lot of problems, okay? Uh, they had a lot of problems as a church, a lot of issues. One of the issues they had, and what 1 Corinthians 8 through 11, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 was dealing with, is this issue of food being sacrificed to idols, eating food sacrificed to idols, and what was going on is multiple things, but one of the things that Paul is addressing is that some of these Corinthians are like, hey, the idol has no existence. It's not real. So I can actually go to the temple and uh, eat food in that temple, that idol's temple to Aphrodite or whoever it was. I can eat food that's been sacrificed to that because there's no reality to it. And I can eat that food. And Paul's been building this argument, really, from 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 to say, no, you can't actually do that. And so what we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22 is the culmination of that argument, or at least most of the culmination of that argument. He's got a little more to say in chapter 10, but this is key, what he's doing when he's wrapping this up in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. So let's read it. Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a partnership in the blood of Christ? Now that word there, your translation might have it as participation or fellowship. Uh, if you were with us in Philippians, you know this word already. It's the word koinonia. It's the word koinonia. But what you need to remember about koinonia is during Paul's time when he wrote about this, that was a well-known word. And the word koinonia communicated the idea of partnership in a joint venture. Partnership in a joint venture. It could be a business venture. It could even be marriage. It could be a lot of things. But what he's talking about here is, I think it's better translated partnership, 
And what he's saying is the bread, uh, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a partnership in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a partnership, a koinonia, in the body of Christ? What's he saying? He's saying we have, as a body, a partnership, a joint venture. And it's a joint venture that's based in the body and blood of Christ. It's saying that in the gospel, in Christ's death, in his body broken, in his blood shed, we are brought together as partners. And we have partnership based on the gospel. That's what he's saying. We have partnership on the gospel. So when, and he goes on, verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. Another way you could render that is from, from one bread, we are participants. It's, he's communicating the same thing. He's saying, you eat this food, you eat the bread, and you eat the cup. It's not an individual exercise. It's a partnership. When you partake in that together, because it points us back to Christ's death and resurrection, and that's the only reason we exist as individuals and as a people, you are displaying partnership with one another. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, one church, because of Christ's body. It's like this, right? Christ gave his body, his one body, to create one body. And where is that one body manifested? It's manifested in the local church. He, he builds this up. He keeps going. Verse, nine, uh, verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners? There's our word again, partners in the altar. What's he saying? Well, usually, mostly the people who ate the sa sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were mainly priests. It's mainly the priests who partook in the altar. Yes, there were some sacrifices in which the Israelite could partake. But what's the idea? As a priesthood, you got to share in that holy food. You ate that food from the sacrifice because you're in partnership as a priesthood. You're in partnership as a priesthood. And then he goes on. He builds it even more. Verse 19. What do I imply then? Now, now remember, what's he, what's he talking against? He's talking against food sacrifice to idols. So he's saying, he's, he's using two examples. He's using the example of the Lord's Supper, and he's using the example of Old Testament Israel to build his case that you shouldn't eat food sacrificed to idols. So notice how he culminates this. Verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to, uh, offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that, uh, that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners, as our word again, with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we partake? Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So what's he saying? He's saying, when you eat, whether it's Old Testament Israel, whether it's the gathered church, or whether it's you're going to Aphrodite's temple and you're having a meal there with his food, 
you're not, you're proclaiming participation. You're claiming partnership with those people when they're worshiping demons and, uh, uh, and false gods. So it's kind of interesting here. Uh, the Lord's Supper is kind of incidental, and yet what he has just said and acknowledged is profound. That when we, as Christians, partake in the Lord's Supper, the sign of the new covenant, we are not merely displaying what Christ has done for us individually, as true as that is, we are displaying our partnership together. We are displaying our partnership, our koinonia. We are our koinonia together as Christians. And you can see this more. So we, I said there was two places, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, and then 1 Corinthians 11. This is a common text to go to for the Lord's Supper. Uh, and it's a different issue. So now he's, he's switched issues in the letter. He's not talking about food sacrifice to idols anymore. But there's a different issue that's going on in relation to the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, And we'll see that issue as it unfolds. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. But in the following instructions, so he's shifting topics, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, now you're going to see that language a bunch, and it's important, because what he's talking about is he's talking about the physical gathering, the physical coming together of the church. Remember, church just means assembly. It means you're assembling together, so you got to come together. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse, or... In the first place, when you come together as a church, as an assembly, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So what's the issue? The issue, at least as we see it so far, is you guys are coming together as a church, you're gathering as a church, and there's divisions there's factions. That's not good. That's bad. You're coming together for, uh, you're not coming together for the better, but for the worse because of this. And he goes on, verse 20. When you come together, see, this is a big deal for Paul. He keeps mentioning that. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, you guys are coming together and you're purporting to eat the Lord's supper. You're coming together and you're purporting to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, you're coming together and you're saying, yeah, we're eating the Lord's Supper together. But he's saying, actually, Paul is saying, actually, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. And you're like, whoa, why not? Verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. You come together, you think you're, you're eating the Lord's Supper but you're not because you're individualizing it. You're eating your own meal. And it's, a, it's more than that. Notice what he says. He says this, one goes hungry and another gets drunk. Now, what is he talking about? Well, uh, probably the best background for this is uh, the early churches, they didn't have like church buildings like this. They had homes. They would meet in homes. And those homes could be pretty big uh, from someone well-to-do in the congregation, right? So they have a big old home. And what you would have is you would have kind of the inner dining room, uh, and then you would have an outer courtyard. 
And probably what's going on here is that the, uh, the people that own the house, right, they, they have their, their, their rich friends, and they're used to eating in their dining room with them together. And then everyone else, maybe, the, maybe the, they, they show up later, uh, the slaves, everyone else, they come. They're Christians, but they show up in the courtyard, and you've got this separation. You've got this distinction. Uh, and in this case, it's a socioeconomic distinction. He's saying that's a faction. That's a division in the body. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? See, what you're doing, you guys are going ahead and eating a bunch, you're eating a sumptuous meal, and these people have nothing or coming, and they get very little, they're hungry. You are despising the church. You're despising the assembly, and you humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, why? Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now that's the section we normally read when we do the Lord's table, isn't it? But it's in this context where he is using that as a reason for why what you're doing with these factions and these divisions in the body, you've got the haves and the have-nots, uh, supposing to, to come together and eat the Lord's Supper as a church, and it is not the Lord's Supper, because here's what Jesus did. And so Paul applies it in verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, in context, what's the unworthy manner? The unworthy manner is eating the Lord's Supper when you've got factions and divisions, when you're doing your own thing versus seeing the body. Now, you could eat the Lord's Supper in a number of unworthy ways. That's not the only way. But he's saying you do it in any unworthy way, and one of which was what the Corinthians were doing, you're going to be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Because, remember where all this comes from, the ground of who we are as Christians, individually and together, is Christ's body and blood. What he did in sacrificing himself, dying for his people, to bring us not merely to him, as amazing and as true as that is, but to bring us together to him. So what does he say? Verse 28, let a person, so now we're talking the individual, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now what's he saying? He's attacking what they're doing wrong. He's saying, you guys... You eat and drink without discerning the body. Now, what's the body? Well, in context, right, uh, he's just mentioned the body of the Lord. But already what we saw in 1 Corinthians 10, it's the body of the Lord that makes the body of the church. 
And that's exactly what they weren't doing. They weren't discerning the body of the church. It's not an individual thing. It's here's the haves and the have-nots. Here's these factions that you've got among you. And these people over here, they're not discerning the body. Because if they were discerning the body, you would see here we all are as a local church, whether I'm a millionaire or whether I'm a slave, it doesn't matter. We are equal because of what Christ has done by his death and resurrection. We are an equal people. And so if you have, you're over here with your own faction, you're going ahead with your own meal and you're not seeing the rest of the body, that is despicable in the Lord's eyes. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge, now that your translation might say judge, it's the same word he just used for discern. So literally, if we discerned ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And that second word for judge in verse 31 is a different word. If we discerned ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, if you discerned the body as an individual, when you're partaking in the Lord's Supper, it's not your own individual meal. You're discerning the body, the church. You're seeing the church. You're seeing the church manifested. You discern the body, you would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, what's the conclusion? So then, my brothers, when you come together, again, coming together as a body, to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So part of the Lord's Supper, inherently part of the Lord's Supper, is eating together as a body. So if we pull these things together, I've got a new definition for you. I'm sure you're surprised. Um, but this time I put it in your notes. I forgot to put baptism in your notes last week. I'm sorry about that. But uh, it's on the screen behind me. It's in your notes there. What is the Lord's Supper? If we were to tie all this together, the Lord's Supper is a local church partaking together of bread and wine or grape juice as the sign of the new covenant remembering Christ's death for them, recognizing one another as members of the same local body, and anticipating the Lord's Supper with Christ and the universal church in his future kingdom. Let me read that again. The Lord's Supper is a local church partaking together of bread and wine, or grape juice, as the sign of the new covenant. That's fundamentally what it is. What do you do when you partake? You're remembering Christ's death for them, them, plural, as a body. Looking back, if we say this when we take the Lord's Supper together, we look back, we remember Christ's death for not just me, but for everyone I see. Recognizing one another as members of the same body. That's 1 Corinthians 10 language. We, when we partake, we're partnering. We're partnering together as members of this church. We look around you. Remember, we use that language. I look back to Christ's sacrifice. I look around to those who are partaking with me because we're partners together. 
and we're anticipating the Lord's Supper with Christ in the universal church in his future kingdom. Because Christ said, I'm not going to drink this again until it's new with you in the new heavens and the new earth in his kingdom. We look back to Christ's death, we look around us to the partners in the gospel with us, and we look forward to participating in the, the meal, the ultimate meal, the ultimate Lord's Supper in the future. I've got more to add to our visual here, so you can see it on the screen behind me. Um, we've got the inside of the church and the outside of the church, the boundaries membership. How do you cross that? You cross that through initially through baptism. Uh, how, and the, the baptism joins one to many. The Lord's Supper does exactly the opposite. It joins the many into one. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. The Lord's Supper is the ongoing way of a church affirming discipleship. Remember, we're couching all of this in terms of the authority that Christ has given the church to affirm discipleship. The Lord's Supper is the ongoing way of a church affirming discipleship. Baptism is the initial way of a church affirming discipleship, but the Lord's Supper isn't the ongoing way. So as we conclude, remember what's at stake in the ordinances. What's at stake is a distinct, definable, visible people who are members of the new covenant through the sacrifice and cleansing wrought by the Son of God, the Spirit of God, and the Father. Nothing less than that. The distinct and definable and visible people. The ordinances together visibly portray the gospel people. Makes one into, makes the, joins one to many, but in the Lord's Supper in particular, makes the many into one. It visibly displays them. That's why I love when we do it the way we do it, where you come up front and you get the Lord's Supper, and we wait, right? We wait for one another until we sit down and we partake together. But when the people are coming forward, you're seeing those who are proclaiming that Christ has done this for them. It's visible. It's visible. Let's answer some questions. Where ought the Lord's Supper to be practiced? Given what we've talked about, right? Given what we've seen from the Scriptures, where ought the Lord's Supper to be practiced? At the church. At the physical, not virtual, Right? You can't can take communion over a bunch of Zoom screens at the physical. When you come together, 1 Corinthians 11, he said it like five or six times. When you come together at the physical, not virtual, gathering of the local church. Which means it should not be taken at camps, small groups, schools, not even as a family. I remember as a kid, uh, we, we, it was great. I mean, God used this moment in my life. Don't, don't misunderstand me, but we had communion together as, as a family, and this is when I was like nine. And I remember my dad saying, now is either a time to rededic uh, either come to Christ for the first time or rededicate our life. And I think that was a moment where God used me and moved me to conversion. I really do. That being said, it was inappropriate to do it as a family because that's something that the whole church does. I'll give you another kind of embarrassing uh, family moment. Um, don't worry, this is just me and Ashley, so. Uh, 
we got married and we did communion at our wedding, me and Ashley. A lot of people do that. And I'm going to say now it was inappropriate because that's not for me and her. That's for the whole body when we're gathered together. So where ought you to take the Lord's Supper at the physical gathering of the local church? How often ought the Lord's Supper to be given or taken? How often ought the Lord's Supper to be given or taken? Here we run into kind of a wisdom thing, right? There's no set instruction in the New Testament, although I would say, based on reading 1 Corinthians 11, it sure seems like every time they gather together as a church, they're taking it. So we can't, uh, I don't think we can be dogmatic about that, but I think there's a principle there that you see in 1 Corinthians 11 that every time the whole church gathering, i.e. at the weekly Sunday service, that they're partaking in the Lord's Supper because what are they portraying? Because of what Christ has done, we who are many are one because of what Christ has done. Who? Who ought to partake in the Lord's Supper? Those who have been baptized as believers by a gospel-preaching church. Baptism is the initial sign, the entry sign of the new covenant. Think back to Exodus. You can partake in the Passover as long as what? You're circumcised, as long as you take on the entry sign of the covenant. Now, in this case, we're not saying that baptism replaces circumcision. We're saying there's a shift in covenants, and we're saying that you want to partake in the new covenant meal, the new covenant sign, then you better have the new covenant entry marker on you. But we can even say more. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11, it's for members. It's for members of the local church. It's for those who have been affirmed by the local embassy as new covenant citizens. It's those partaking are known and affirmed by all the members. These are the things the elders believe that the scriptures teach. I think Steve prayed it well at the beginning. If it's an opinion, it doesn't matter. But it's from the scriptures. And here's the thing. We believe these are means that Christ himself has given to portray a visible, distinct, and definable people. If that's true, we can't negotiate on that because it's something Christ is doing. We started working on this as elders back in April, talking and talking and thinking. And you guys know we're not practicing this right now. We would like to begin implementing this within the next few months. What would that look like? Well, it would me, me or Steve or Jim up front, you know, when we're talking about communion, here's the sort of language we would use. This is primarily, so imagine we've got the, 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 the meal up here, and one of us is up there, me, Jim, or Steve. This is primarily for members of Faith Bible Church to display and affirm that they are members of the new covenant together. And then I would add to that, or Jim or Steve, if you're here today visiting and you belong to another gospel preaching church, if you're members of another gospel preaching church and have been baptized as a believer, 
we would welcome you to participate with us today. Think of that embassy picture, right? So maybe someone's visiting, and they're visiting from another embassy, and they happen to be there. And they've been members of that church, they're baptized. Yeah, come join us as this local embassy. You're from another embassy, but come join us today for taking together. And then I would have to add this language. We would add this language. If neither of those are true of you, in other words, you're not a member of this church and you're not a member of another church, we would ask that you refrain. And if you have questions about our practice in this, please come talk to the elders after the service. Now, let me back up a second. If you've been tracking with this series, who has the authority the stewardship authority that Christ has given it to exercise the keys. The local church, the whole local church, a.k.a. the members. So we believe that Christ has given a stewardship authority to this local church, to the members of Faith Bible Church. So here's how this works. The elders believe this is the right direction, the direction where Scripture would have us head but we will not implement this position until the members of Faith Bible Church affirm the direction. That's what it means to be a elder-led, congregationally affirmed church. We've, we've seen it in Matthew 16, Matthew 18 in particular, that Jesus gave authority to bind and to loose to the members. Because the Holy Spirit's not just working in me, Jim, and Steve— working in all the members of the church. So we believe this is the direction to go, but we will not implement it until the members of this church affirm this direction. We also know this is new, and many of you, I would be very, very surprised if many of you didn't have questions and concerns. Like, because I remember the first time thinking through these things, I had questions and concerns. So this is new, Many of you will have questions and concerns, so here's my plea. I beg you, please come talk with Jim, Steve, or I. We want to listen to you. If you disagree with this position or are struggling, that's okay. That's okay. But come talk to us. What you, what you shouldn't do, don't go away angry, fuming, grumbling, murmuring, and not talking to us, that doesn't help anyone. We want to hear you. We want to hear your concerns. We want to listen to you. We love you, and we want to guide you in the way that we believe the Scriptures are directing. Because, again, what's at stake? What's at stake is the gospel. The gospel being visibly portrayed in his people in a visible, distinct, and definable way. It's all about Christ. It's about the gospel. It's about the God-man dying in our place as the ultimate Passover lamb. It's about him reconciling us to himself, yes, but to a new family together. We give great thanks and praise for that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the ultimate Passover lamb. We thank you for the sign of the new covenant that you've given to remember again and again and again and to affirm one another in discipleship. Lord, we ask for help. We ask for your direction and your guidance. You are, this is your church. 
This is your church, Lord Jesus. And we just are stewards, and we want to humbly come under your direction. So we ask for help in that. We ask for wisdom, not just among Jim, Steve, and I, but also among all the members of this church. And we thank you. We thank you so much. Lord, if there are any here today who do not know you, grant repentance. Grant grace to see the sacrifice and to know you and to be welcomed into your people. Lord, we long for that and we ask for that. We thank you for our time together this morning. In Christ's name, amen.